Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 93. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on October 24th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. On the small chance that you do not know already, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Before we get to the history fun, you might or might not be delighted to hear that I subjected myself to a long interview on the Snake Show, Robert Hansen's podcast right here in Austin. You can hear me roll on about all sorts of stuff, mostly the history we have covered so far, for more than two hours, and even watch on YouTube. On the small chance you haven't already heard enough of me on such subjects, I'll put a link in the show notes and put up a separate blog post. It was actually a lot of fun. And you might check out other episodes of The R-Snake Show, spelled R-S-N-A-K-E, although pronounced more like arsenic, I guess, at least to my ear. Robert's a world-renowned cybersecurity expert who's gotten to know a lot of interesting people over the years. Many of his shows have been with leaders in technology, so his interview of me is a bit of a departure for his usual audience, but uh, perhaps they will enjoy it as much as you guys, and I certainly had a lot of fun. Thank you, Robert. Two other short items. The first is that I'm slowly continuing my project of re-recording the earliest episodes of the podcast, most of which don't sound so good. I re-recorded and published episode one, The Americans Before Columbus, part one, over the weekend just passed. If you want to listen to it, you can just go back to the episode in your podcast app or on the website. If you re-download it, the version you hear will be the new one. The other is that my schedule in real life continues to be very busy on account of the hunt for the legal tender and family obligations and a couple of fun trips. I'll do my best to keep the content coming, but we'll probably have more than a week between episodes until after Thanksgiving. Okay, on to the Dutch. Last time, the Dutch joined the race to settle the Atlantic coast of today's United States. Since the last episode, Here Come the Dutch, set the geopolitical and economic table, as it were, it would behoove you to listen to that before jumping into this one. And, of course, if you want the super deep dive into New Netherland, you might want to listen to the great work of Eric Yannis, who covered the Dutch in 17 detailed episodes in his podcast, The Other States of America History Podcast. Link in the show notes for that, too, for those of you who cannot get enough of the Dutch. It's the spring of 1624, a new high watermark for this podcast, and all sorts of stuff is happening in the wider world. On May 24th, the city of Oslo burned to the ground for the 14th time. Under the circumstances, it's a little surprising that the Norskis didn't invent the fire department. On the same day, James I of England would revoke the charter of the Virginia Company and establish a crown colony on the Chesapeake. If there'd been Twitter then, it would have gone nuts that day. The Thirty Years' War rages on in Europe. In June 1624, France entered into a treaty with the Dutch Republic to subsidize its renewed war with Spain for at least three years. Overseas, the Dutch continued to expand. In May 8, a fleet of the newly capitalized Dutch West India Company captured Salvador on the northeastern coast of Brazil and its rich sugar plantations from the Portuguese. 
on July 30th, a fleet of 50 Chinese ships carrying 5,000 soldiers attacked a base of the Dutch East India Company in the Pengu Islands in the Strait of Taiwan. Chinese ejected the Dutch after five days of fighting, and with Chinese permission, the VOC moved its regional trading post to Taiwan. The northeastern coast of today's United States remained a relative backwater. The pilgrims have stabilized their relationship with the tribes around Patuxet, and various other English have set up nano-settlements in the greater Boston area. Attentive listeners will remember that the Dutch had been trading in the region competitively since the New Netherland Company's patent expired in 1618. Recall that William Bradford had dispatched Edward Winslow to make contact with a Dutch ship that had run aground in Narragansett Bay near Poconoke, Massasoit's base. Bradford knew that the Dutch had been knocking around the region and wanted to connect with them, but the ship had floated itself and sailed off before Winslow got there. In 1621, the Dutch had formed the Dutch West India Company and had lavishly capitalized it and acquired a fleet of ships by the end of 1623. Unfortunately, we know very little of the West India Company's activities in North America between 1623 and 1636 or so. In the early 19th century, the company's records were sold as scrap paper. By 1636, New Netherland was generating its own documents, and they've survived in the New York State archives. So we have this 13, 14-year gap that historians have filled in with correspondence and other records that somehow escaped destruction, often because they were in private hands or had been developed by other countries keeping tabs on the Dutch. The important takeaway is that the historical record in this case will contain a fair amount of speculation stitched together from short passages and letters and other documents like that. There are apparently hints in the documents that some Dutch settlers arrived as early as 1623, but no proof. And the best scholarly work by Jaap Jacobs says that the more likely date is early 1624. In January of that year, a small ship named Eindracht, commanded by Adrian Joris Thienpoint, apologies for the pronunciation, left the Netherlands with no more than a few dozen Dutch and Walloon settlers. We do not know where it made landfall, but Jacob says, quote, Presumably these colonists were divided over four locations. The mouth of the Fresh River, probably Kivitz Hook, now Old Saybrook, Connecticut, on the western bank. Fort Wilhelmus on the Hoog Island, now Burlington Island, between Philadelphia and Trenton, on the South River. Newton Island, now Governor's Island, near Manhattan. And the upper reaches of the North River, where Fort Orange was founded near today's Albany. The reason for the dispersion of the colonists was to lay claim to the whole area. Back to me. You will recall from the last episode that the South River was the Dutch name for the Delaware River, the North River was their term for the Hudson, and the Fresh River was the Connecticut. The dispersion to which Jacobs refers was required according to the Dutch legal theory that a valid claim to territory rested on actual settlement of it. Finally, Joris and Catalina Repallier, the long-lived and fertile couple who we met at the end of the last episode, 
were where the group sent up the Hudson to help establish Fort Orange. According to Jacobs, we know a bit more about the voyage of the ship New Netherland under the command of Cornelius Jacobson May, the man after whom Cape May, New Jersey's named. He'd already sailed the region in 1614 and 1616, cruising both the South and North Rivers. The New Netherland arrived in June 1624 with 30 Walloon families. May would be the first functional director of the colony of New Netherland, although he probably did not have the title as a formal matter. He returned to the Netherlands in October and reported to the directors of the company that Fort Wilhelmus on the South River had in fact been established. Attentive listeners will recall that the Walloons were essentially Belgians. There was no Belgium then, of course, but that area was also plagued with war and Spanish oppression, and so French-speaking Walloons had fled to the Netherlands. Like the pilgrims at Plymouth, they were fundamentally refugees, which made them much more willing to leave for the wilderness of North America than the rich and comfortable Dutch had been. As a result, New Netherland would be the most polyglot of the European colonies in North America for quite some time to come. The settlers on Governor's Island, which is quite small, would soon decamp to Manhattan, and we shall get to that. They were not to be the first people of European descent to settle on that island, though. That honor falls to a man named Juan, or Jan if you're Dutch, Rodriguez. He's one of these fascinating and mysterious multicultural figures in vast early America, and it's a shame we don't know more about him. Here's what we do know. Rodriguez was born in Spain's first colony in the New World, Santo Domingo, in today's Dominican Republic. His father was a Portuguese sailor, and his mother was West African. He had a remarkable talent for languages and was hired by a Dutch trader for a fur trading mission with the Lanyape tribes on the North River in 1613. On that trip, he took his pay in trading goods, hatchets and knives and such, and learned enough of the Lenape language to stay behind with the Indians. He apparently married an Indian woman and settled on Manhattan. There are a few references to him in Dutch documents from the 16-teens, and then he disappears from history. In late 2012, anticipating the 400th anniversary of Juan's arrival at Manhattan, Mayor Bloomberg signed legislation to co-name Broadway between 159th Street and 218th Street after Rodriguez. The Dominican Studies Institute of City University announced that Rodriguez was, quote, the first immigrant, the first black person, the first merchant, the first Latino, and to us, the first Dominican to have ever lived in New York City. That is a lot of firsts. It must be said, however, that one might challenge at least a couple of them. How would we know if Rodriguez was the first immigrant to Manhattan unless we were ignoring immigration between Indian nations? Is it possible to imagine that the Lenape Indians on Manhattan at no point welcome Indians from other indigenous nations? On the contrary, it's highly likely that they did because Indian groups did it all the time. And was Rodriguez the first merchant? Were not the Indians with their ancient and vast trading networks sourcing the furs and other goods that Europeans would trade for 
actually the first merchants. I'm not sure that the Dominican Studies Institute of City University had thought this all the way through. Anyway, there's no reason to think that Rodriguez didn't live out his years on Manhattan with his family and adopted tribe. It's a loss that he didn't write down his story or tell it to somebody who did. Now, the Dutch West India Company was managed by 19 directors, known as the Heron 19, which fairly obviously translates to the 19 men. Diversity wasn't yet a thing on 17th century corporate boards and wouldn't be for roughly 380 years. These men came from various Dutch cities, and the directors from those cities would be primarily responsible for a subset of the activities of the company, the Amsterdam Chamber, as it is described in translation, had primary jurisdiction over New Netherland, which itself was but a small part of the West India Company's mandate. In September 1624, the Heron 19 decided to strengthen the four settlements of New Netherland by sending livestock. The next spring, they would dispatch three ships with the unimaginative and yet entirely functional names the cow, the sheep, and the horse, presumably reflecting their cargoes. This was really the first large livestock in the region. The pilgrims had brought goats and chickens and had gotten a very few cattle in 1623, but were not known to have sheep until later in the 1620s. The first English horses wouldn't arrive until the 1630s and would come with the settlers of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. At the same meeting, the Heron 19 appointed a first official governor of the colony, Willem Verholst. He'd probably sailed on May's ship in 1624 and would receive news of his appointment at some point in 1625. Curiously, the appointment of Verholst only became known in the 20th century, which reflects the poor historical record for New Netherland in the 1620s. It would turn out to be a hot mess, about which more in a moment. Now, the Heron 19 had been quite clear on their instructions regarding relations with the Indians. They had issued two directives. First, that the settlers should maintain good relations with the local tribes because trading, especially for fur, was the primary purpose of New Netherland. Under no circumstances were the settlers to involve themselves in intertribal conflict. Perhaps they gave this order having heard about Opakankana's war in Virginia. Regardless, this would not turn out to be an easy directive to comply with. Second and closely related, they had ordered that no land be stolen from the Indians. It must be purchased, and honestly. That will bring us to the second most storied acquisition of land in American history, arguably surpassed only by the Louisiana Purchase, in short order. Settlement in the crowded wilderness of the New World was never easy and always dangerous. Two crises would arise in 1626, one up the North River at Fort Orange and another on Governor's Island. Let's go to Russell Shorto's account of the disaster at Fort Orange first, for I cannot improve on it. Quote, Events soon derailed the initial settlement strategy in the Dutch province. Joris Rapalier, his wife Catalina, and the other settlers at what was now called Fort Orange, which under the English would become Albany, saw their hard work come to a sudden, grisly end in the spring of 1626. 
Their settlement on the river bank was on the former hunting grounds of the Mohicans, who had welcomed them. To the north and west stretched the territory of the Mohawks. These two tribes, the first one of the Algonquin-speaking nations, the second one of the five tribes of the Iroquois League, had very different backgrounds and beliefs. Their languages were as distinct as English and Russian. They had different customs and little respect for one another. For decades, they'd been fighting an intermittent war, and the appearance of European traders in their midst stirred the conflict to a new level. In addition, after more than a decade of contact with Europeans, these tribes were reorienting their lives around the acquisition of foreign products. Fishing hooks, axes, kettles, glassware, needles, pots, knives, and duffel. The rough wool cloth that originated in the Flemish town of Duffel, and which gives us the name Duffel Bag. Later, of course, guns and liquor would be added to that list. Mohicans were even relocating their villages to be closer to the Dutch in an attempt to form a trading and defensive alliance. Call it friendship or self-interest. By 1626, the Mohicans and the Dutch had established a closeness. This closeness was probably what led Daniel van Kriekenbeck, the commander of the fort, to ignore explicit orders forbidding interference in intertribal affairs with results that would redound to the present. One spring day in 1626, a Mohican party of more than two dozen men came into the palisade of rough-cut logs and asked Van Kriekenbeck for Dutch aid in their fight against the Mohawks. Van Kriekenbeck had his orders. The West India Company had clearly instructed William Verhulst that he shall be very careful not lightly to embroil himself in the Indians' quarrels or wars or to take sides, but to remain neutral. On the other hand, Van Kriekenbeck surely felt responsible for the well-being of the handful of young couples, including a number of pregnant women and perhaps some infants, in the midst of the forest thousands of miles from home. It stood to reason that helping the Mohicans now would yield a firm ally in the future. So he agreed. The Mohicans led the way, and he and six of his men followed, disappearing into the pines. Three miles from the fort, they were inundated by a storm of arrows. In one swift, bloody assault, a band of ambushing Mohawks put an end to the Dutch-Mohican alliance and, by the way, altered the history of the world. Von Kriekenbeck, three of his men and 24 Mohicans, including Monomen, took fatal hits. The Mohawks made a show of their victory and nicely capped the terror they had caused by roasting and eating one especially unfortunate Dutchman named Tymon Buens. Back to me. The Mohawks had, obviously, learned their lesson. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember their first encounter with Europeans, Champlain, at Ticonderoga only 17 years before, which we covered in our episode Mohawk Down back in March 2022. A lot had changed in those years, including that Champlain's preemptive attack had deterred the Mohawks from expanding to the north for at least a generation. It's no wonder that they were now pressing on the Mohicans to their south. At roughly the same time, things weren't going too well on Governor's Island, then known by the Dutch as Nutten Island, or Nut Island in English. The Lenape called it Pagank, P-A-G-G-A-N-C-K, 
which apparently also means Nut Island. It's not clear whether the Dutch named it Newton Island because of the Lenape word or because they, too, saw that it was covered with nut-bearing trees and independently came to the same name. Regardless, at only 172 acres, it was too small to support a settlement. Even if it was much larger than the five-acre St. Croix Island in Maine, the place that Champlain shows as the site of his first colony in North America. And we all know, bad choice. Once the livestock arrived, the settlers, mostly Walloon, kept them on Manhattan, only 800 yards away. How they planned to milk their cows or butcher their steers and bring it all back to Governor's Island is not obvious, to say the least. Their biggest problem was their new governor, Willem Verholst, who apparently was not just incompetent, but also stupid and mean. He imposed harsh and inconsistent punishment on the colonists. According to Shorto, he and his wife may also have misappropriated funds, or an even worse offense, cheated Indians, in seeming direct contravention of the orders of the West India Company to the contrary. The colonists wanted Verholst out. It was in this context that news arrived from upriver that war with the Mohawks had broken out up near Albany. The colony now desperately needed a new leader. A remarkable one stepped forward, a man named Peter Minui, spelled M-I-N-U-I-T. German was Minui's first language, and Dutch was his second, but his ancestry was French. Shorto suggests that he probably pronounced his last name the French way, Minui, as I will do, because Shorto certainly knows a lot more than I do. But unless somebody knows otherwise, I'm not sure how we would know that he didn't modify it to sound more like German or Dutch. Indeed, Dutch correspondents referred to him as Pierre Meinet, French in his first name and Dutchish in his last. Now to Shorto, quote, He is one of those figures of history for whom everything we know about him makes us wish we knew more. He had had no military training, but he was an individualist, take-charge sword who would affect the course of history in more ways than one. His father had taken part in the northward migration of Protestants fleeing Spanish troops and inquisitors and settled in the small German town of Vessel near the Dutch border. And it was here that Peter Minui grew up. He would turn out to be a scrappy businessman with no fixed loyalties and a great drive to get ahead, and in good upwardly mobile fashion. He made his first smart move in life by marrying the mayor of the nearby town of Cleve. He and his wife then moved 75 miles west to the larger Dutch city of Utrecht, where Minwee trained to become a diamond cutter. He found that a dull occupation, hardy-har-har, and heard of the formation of the West India Company. Through French-speaking circles, he learned further that a party of Walloons was signing on as pioneers in a venture to the New World. He appeared at the stately mansion of West India House on Amsterdam's Brewer's Canal one day in 1624, asking for a posting to New Netherland, apparently not as a settler or company official, but as a private volunteer businessman scouting trade opportunities. The directors must have been impressed by his energy. Minui appears to have shipped out with one of the first groups of settlers for the company's initial instructions to Verhulst say that, quote, he shall have... Pierre Minot, 
as a volunteer and others whom he deems competent there to sail up the river as far as they can in order to inspect the condition of the land. And we might thus have been among the party of Catalina Trica and Joris Repaillet when they sailed upriver. And he seems, during this early period, to have gathered a good deal of information about the new land. He then apparently returned to Amsterdam for a time, perhaps to deliver the, quote, samples of dyes, drugs, gums, herbs, plants, trees, and flowers, the instructions asked him to supply. For the records show him leaving the Dutch Republic once again in January of 1626 and returning to New Netherland on May 4th. So he'd spent time in the colony, enough time to impress the settlers with his abilities, and then return to Europe. Now I was coming back. Not long after, his ship, the Seamew, passed through the narrows between Staten Island, named in honor of the States General of the United Provinces, and Long Island, named for obvious reasons, and dropped anchor in the harbor, he would have been inundated with the bad news. Back to me. The settlers, tiring of Verhulst, had formed their own governing council. They put Verhulst on trial and voted to banish him and his wife from the province. And when Minwi returned, they voted him as their new commander. In this new role, Minwi was decisive. And in his first decision, at least the first that we know of, he decided to move the settlers from Governor's Island to Manhattan and to consolidate the scattered bands of beleaguered colonists in the future New Amsterdam. Manhattan's advantages were many. It was a huge space with forests full of game, flatlands that could be cleared and farmed, and ample supplies of fresh water. Its location was famously and for all time incredibly strategic. Manhattan sat at the mouth of the North River, gateway to the fur trade, and it was perched at the edge of a deep and large harbor that did not freeze in the winter. Shorto wrote that Manhattan was, in short, a natural fulcrum between the densely civilized continent of Europe and the tantalizingly wild continent of North America. It was the perfect island. The only problem was that the Dutch didn't own it. So Minwe, in keeping with the instructions of the Dutch West India Company, bought it. In fact, Europeans had bought lots of land from Indians all up and down the coast, but most Americans do not know about these transactions. Almost all Americans who paid any attention at school, though, know about the purchase of Manhattan. It's the stuff of legend, and the reasons are obvious. Manhattan would eventually become, in European and then American hands, some of the most valuable real estate in the entire world. In comparison to it, the supposedly low purchase price of $24 seems like the greatest bargain of all time. Indeed, it is popular today to think of it as a swindle. The history is more interesting. As you will remember, because I said it a few minutes ago, the records of the Dutch West India Company were sold for scrap in the early 19th century. The original documents recording the sale have been lost. Like many events in early New Netherland, we have only an echo of what happened, and we can only speculate as to the motives of the Indians on the other side of the transaction. Let's go to Shorto's account. Quote, In July of 1626... 
Isaac de Rezier, a 30-year-old merchant's son with a taste for adventure, stepped off the ship the arms of Amsterdam and onto the Manhattan shore, ready to begin his duties as secretary of the province. Surviving documents include letters that de Rezier wrote to his bosses in Holland. In one, he reported that the island was home to a small group of natives whom he called the Manhattan. They are about 200 to 300 strong, women and men, under different chiefs, whom they call Sakamas. It was presumably this small band, probably a northern branch of the Leni Lenape Indians, with whom Peter Minwe consummated a real estate transaction. This true no deed is on file anywhere to prove that the sale took place, but many other important records of the period have failed to survive the centuries. We also have an account from the 1670s that makes reference to the deed to Manhattan, so it existed at that time. Most interestingly, we have an excellent evocative account of the purchase by someone who had no interest in deceiving. When the arms of Amsterdam left Manhattan on its return voyage, it carried a neat collection of items and individuals associated with this pivotal moment in history. First, the banished Verholst himself, along with his wife, returning in disgrace and anger. Second, a chest containing the personal effects of the unfortunate Daniel Van Kriekenbeck, including an otter skin coat and a ring, which were being sent to his wife. Third, a letter from de Razier to the West India Company directors, in which he detailed the council's decision to oust Verholst, as well as information about the purchase of Manhattan. This information may well have been the deed itself and might thus have been among the West India Company records that were sold for scrap in 1821 and so vanished forever. Fortunately, however, Peter Schagen, a Dutch official who had just been appointed to represent the government on the company's board, was on the dock when the ship pulled into port. He wrote a letter to his superiors at The Hague giving a detailed description of the ship's contents and news of the province. It's one of the most famous historical documents in the Dutch language and one of the most important records of early American history. It is, in effect, New York City's birth certificate. Back to me. Shorto quotes Shagan's letter, which I will do now, partly because I like the language. High and mighty lords, my lords, the states general at The Hague. High and mighty lords, colon. Yesterday arrived here the ship The Arms of Amsterdam, which sailed from New Netherland on the 23rd September. They report that our people are in good heart and live in peace there. The women also have borne some children there. They have purchased the island Manhattus from the Indians for the value of 60 guilders. It's 11,000 morgans in size. All right, here's a little interjection. A morgan was about two acres. This was therefore a bit of an overestimate insofar as Manhattan today with some new land filled in is only 14,600 acres. By comparison, the 10th biggest ranch in Texas the 10th biggest ranch is 275,000 acres, or almost 19 times the size of Manhattan. Back to Shagan's letter. They had all their grain sowed by the middle of May, and they reaped by the middle of August. They send thence samples of summer grain, such as 
wheat, rye, barley, oats, buckwheat, canary seed, beans, and flax. The cargo of the aforesaid ship is 7,246 beaver skins, 178.5 otter skins, 675 more otter skins, 48 mink skins, 36 wildcat skins, 33 minks, 34 rat skins, considerable oak timber, and hickory. Herewith, high and mighty lords, be commended to the mercy of the Almighty. In Amsterdam, the 5th of November, 1626, your high mightinesses obedient, P. Shagen. Back to me. This is how we know the purchase price, in scare quotes, of Manhattan, reduced in lore to $24. But how should we think about it? First, at a technical matter, it fails as a matter of currency exchange rates. This is a bit of a quibble, but worth spelling out. The $24 reflects a calculation in the mid-19th century, about 1840, and it bears little relationship to buying power 200 years before. As importantly, the payment was not 60 guilders, but goods that the Dutch valued at 60 guilders. The money would not have been interesting to the Indians, but the goods would have been very interesting. A knife or hatchet in Amsterdam would not have been worth much at all, but it was extremely valuable to tribes in the Northeast with no capacity for making steel. Shorto looks at comparable such transactions in early America and argues that the price for the Manhattan wilderness was comparable to other such purchases of land, not only between the Dutch and the English on the one hand and the Indians on the other, but between Europeans. Minui, therefore, paid what he would have believed was a fair price rather than an exploitative one. And, of course, nobody knew that Manhattan would become Manhattan. The bargaining disparity was not, at that time, on account of coercion. Rather, it was because Indians had an entirely different idea of land ownership than Europeans. Back to Shorto, quote, With no concept of permanent property transfer, Indians in the Northeast saw a real estate deal as a combination of a rental agreement and a treaty or alliance between two groups. Indian nations were divided and subdivided into tribes, villages, and other communities. They were often at war or in fear of attack from other groups and often entered into defensive alliances with one another, which involved sharing certain tribal lands in exchange for the strength of numbers. This colored the way the Indians saw their land deals with the Dutch and English. They would give the newcomers use of some of their land in exchange they would get Blankets, knives, kettles, and other extremely useful goods. And also, a military ally. Back to me. Shorto cites examples of such transactions elsewhere in early colonial America and concludes, that was probably what the Mahican Moneman had in mind when he approached the unfortunate Daniel von Kriekenbeck. He was asking the Dutch to fulfill what he understood to be part of the bargain on the land deal at Fort Orange to help him in a battle with his enemies. It's also the case that the Indians who sold Manhattan intended to continue to use the land, and they did. They lived on the island, working aside and among the Dutch and other Europeans there for more than 50 years after the famous purchase. It wasn't until 1680 
that there's the first suggestion in the record that Indians no longer lived on the island, having by then moved across the Harlem River into the Bronx. Then we consolidated the 200 or so settlers of New Netherland on Manhattan, with the exception of a small detachment of soldiers remaining up the river at Fort Orange. He led them in the building of a legitimate town, and within a year had erected 30 houses in a single stone building, which would be the offices and warehouse of the Dutch West India Company. He also built a fort, which stood on the location of today's National Museum of the American Indian, Whether the fort was intended to protect the settlement against Indians, or more likely, hostile Europeans, has some bearing on whether one finds that bit of trivia ironic. We do not know, but in light of Opakankana's war, it's reasonable to assume that the fort served both purposes. We will return to New Amsterdam, which would be a very different place than the religious and monocultural English settlements in nearby New England. New Amsterdam, like New York City even today, was a fundamentally commercial city and welcoming to people from all over the world. Soon there would be other Europeans there and Arab sailors and blacks from Africa, both free and enslaved. Manhattan very quickly became the most multicultural place in North America, and so it would remain to the present day. We'll get back to it time and time again, I imagine. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.